Good morning. It's certainly good to see everybody here this morning. We're, we're grateful for your presence. Uh, whether you're here with us in person or online, we're grateful uh, for your presence. And we're grateful for the God of heaven for giving us this opportunity uh, to be here today. He's given us uh, the health and he's given us the means uh, to be here and, and worship him. It truly is the privilege of humanity to worship our God in heaven. And it's good to see everybody here at, at, at Midway. I cannot tell you how good it feels to be back here uh, in Midway. Uh, Kayla and I uh, have certainly missed you uh, tremendously. That is an understatement. Uh, you have been in our hearts. You have been in our thoughts, our prayers constantly. And I trust that we have been in yours as well. Uh, Texas has been good to us. Uh, that is, until up, up until recently... Decided not to give us uh, uh, some water, decided not to give us, uh, at least for one day, some power during one of the worst winter storms in, in, in history of Texas. But uh, we forgive Texas, though. We're on our way back tomorrow. We're about to be reconciled tomorrow. And so we certainly pray for safe travels. Uh, before we get into our, our lesson this morning, uh, I want to give you a, a quick overview of what exactly we, we are doing in Texas uh, we, we, uh, Kayla and I live in a, a small town called Carrizo Springs. That's about one and a half two hours, uh, to two hours southwest of San Antonio. Population of around 5,500 people. Uh, it's surrounded by uh, cities of roughly the same size, if not smaller. Uh, to the north, about 10 miles, you have a city called Cari uh, Crystal City uh, with a population of about 7,000 people. Uh, 30 miles to the north of Carrizo, there's a city called uh, La Prior, about a uh, population 1,500 people. To the east uh, uh, of Carrizo, you have a town called Big Wells, uh, um, population around 1,000. And, and to the southeast, uh, pop, uh, Asherton is a city there of a population of under 1,000 as well. Uh, within those uh, cities, uh, about a 30-mile radius, there is uh, one congregation of the Lord's Church, which is in Carrizo Springs. And excluding my family, the, uh, the number of that congregation is now four. Um, and so uh, the reason I, I leave off my family is because there's about 14 of us. And so uh, just to give you some real numbers. But uh, what I do is I commute about 45 miles north of Carrizo Springs to a city called Uvalde. Uvalde, Texas. Uh, it has a population of about 16,000 people. Uh, the congregation there is, is composed of, of roughly, on average, about 80 uh, members there. Now, they have a full-time pulpit preacher. They have a full-time Spanish minister as well. And so they hired me to uh, be with the young people. Uh, and so I teach uh, the youth class there, which now averages about 11 people. Uh, ranging uh, roughly, the, uh, the ages go from uh, 9 to about mid-20s. And so it, it's, uh, it's a good spectrum uh, of students there. Now, although I do have a couple of students that meet in person uh, there in Uvalde, most of us students are online. You have some students in Carrizo Springs uh, and some students in uh, a town called Eagle Pass, which I forgot to mention, which is located about 40 miles west of Carrizo Springs. Now, that has a population of about 30,000 people, and as far as I know, there is but one very small uh, congregation of the Lord's uh, Church. They're not meeting uh, due to COVID, and so I teach their, uh, some of their young people as well. 
and, and so just the area, that the region down there, we have uh, students from different cities, and of course the rest of my students would be from Uvalde itself. Perhaps the most accurate word that I can use to describe the congregation in Uvalde, and I'm trying to put it as carefully, but also being as bluntly as I, as I can, the congregation is weak. And the reason it is weak is because it is weak in the word. I've heard it said that where the pulpit goes, so goes a congregation. And I'm finding that to be the case there as well. Uvalde, unfortunately, has had a weak pulpit for some time now, and you certainly see the fruits of that. The result is that many of the members, along with the leadership, um, are because they lack the, the, the base knowledge of God's word, uh, they are heavily influenced by the denominations around them. Now, don't get me wrong, we're not talking about an apostate church. We're not talking about a church that is doing anything that is overtly sinful. But seeing as they are on a certain path, it is difficult to see that how they can continue on this path while still being faithful in the future. Now, some of you at this point might ask, well, Andrew, why on earth would you take a position in, in, in a place like that when the walls are crumbling? Well, that's exactly why. Uh, I think more, uh, more sound gospel preachers need to be in places where things aren't perfect. Uh, and, and so that's why I'm there, precisely because the walls need repairing. And, and so, in fact, the very foundation of that place uh, needs uh, to be reset, and thus m many of the of the lessons for our youth class is foundational work. We've, we started with apologetics. Is there a God? How can you know there is a God? Uh, wh wh how can you know that the Bible is God's word and so forth? We move to the beginning of things, be the beginning in, in Genesis, the beginning of, uh, beginning of, of God and, and beginning of home and, and, and the beginning of language and nations and so forth. And, and so that's where we're at right now. We're in Genesis chapter 3. But as far as the adults, because I do not have a regular pulpit, it is very difficult to teach from that position. And so my concentration has been on personal Bible studies. Um, I do have a, a one a study uh, ready is in process and uh, a couple other uh, potential studies lined up as well. The point is, friends, that within that 70-mile radius in which I live, there is a severe a lack of sound gospel preaching. Uh, so my immediate goals have been, first of all, to begin preaching on a weekly basis in Carrizo Springs, while also working with the youth, uh, keeping uh, that activity with the youth in Uvalde, uh, concentrating uh, on uh, establishing Bible studies in Uvalde as well, uh, seeking opportunities to uh, preach there in Uvalde uh, when the time comes. But aside from Bible studies, uh, one of the ways uh, to, to saturate the community with the Word of God uh, has, has been to get house to house into the community, into as much of the community as uh, possible. And we're working on that in Uvalde, um, as well as Carrizo Springs. And, and furthermore, there are plans as well to uh, establish a vacation Bible school in Uvalde. And the elders have basically given me the, the green light. Uh, to begin it and organize it. And so uh, we are excited about that, Lord willing, that will come to fruition. Uh, I'm not the only busy one. Uh, Kayla has been keeping busy. She, has, uh, she started a ladies' class in Carrizo Springs. She also teaches uh, the young people there in Carrizo on Sundays as well. 
The thrust of our, of our work is simply uh, to teach and preach God's word to those who are not receiving it. Uh, that's as simply as I can put it. And, and Kayla and I would certainly appreciate uh, your, your, your words of encouragement and, and the cards. We certainly appreciated them as well as your prayers. Our lesson this morning is a lesson that I want Uvalde to know more than anything. It's a lesson that I want Carrizo Springs, the area where I live. It's a lesson that I want that area to understand more than anything. It's a lesson that I would want every member here in this congregation to understand more than any. Before every other lesson, this is the lesson that every Christian here ought to be founded upon. If I had to speak one lesson to this nation... And one lesson only, this lesson would be the foundational lesson. It's a lesson about every other lesson in the Bible, and the lesson is this, God has spoken. The constancy of Scripture is that God has spoken. God has spoken to man. God has revealed himself. He's revealed his mind. He's revealed his will to humanity And now you would think that humanity would know what that means. Uh, But you and I know that that is not the case. When we look out into our world, what we see is humanity is is largely bent on doing just about everything opposite that God has said. God speaks on an issue and humanity immediately has a problem with it. You know, but but it's not something that's confined to our modern times, though. Uh, You begin there in the garden. Just open up your Bible. And you see immediately mankind has a problem dividing God's word. Eve. Adam and Eve. We're not supposed to eat of that tree when the serpent comes to Eve. We're not supposed to eat of that tree. Why? Because God said. God said if we eat of that tree, in the day that we eat of it, we shall surely die. Now you would think that that would be the end of the issue. You would think that mankind would just get it. If mankind did get it at that point, friends, we would, we would have a very short Bible. But the reason that our Bible is 66 books long is because humanity has not gotten it. The serpent responds, you will not surely die. And because Adam and Eve doubt God's word, they disobey it. God speaks to Cain and Abel. And Cain doubts God's words. The Bible says that Abel offered his sacrifice by faith, which means that that Cain did not offer his sacrifice by faith. God revealed his expectations to Cain and Abel, and Cain did not give God his expectations. God spoke to the people in Noah's day. In Genesis chapter 6, you'll read that the wickedness of man was great in all the earth, and the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. But you know, God didn't ask for that. Because you'll read in about 1 Peter chapter, chapter 3, verse 18 and following, along with 2 Peter 2, uh, 5 and following, that, that God was using Noah, while the ark was being prepared, God was using Noah to preach righteousness. And his message was, you need to be in the boat. You need to be in the right boat. You need to be in the boat that was built by God. You're telling me I need to be in your boat to be saved? No, I'm telling you, you need to be in God's boat to be saved. That was the message, and people doubted. God spoke to Israel in the wilderness. You need to take the land, and the people said, no, we can't take the land. Time and time again, friends, humanity has failed to comprehend fully the lesson that God has spoken. 
And so what I want to do this morning is simply talk about what that means that God has spoken. We'll have three points with reference to God, and we'll have three points of application of what it ought to mean for us. First of all, with with reference to God, what God has spoken means is that God's word is finished. God's word is finished. God's not going to be saying any more things than what he has already said in his word. Now, you and I must understand that when, when, when we hold our Bibles in our hands, what we are holding is the entire revelation of God to man. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul begins this chapter uh, by saying that he, when he preached to Corinth for the first time, uh, he came to them not with a certain wisdom. He says, I came to, to you, Corinth, not with persuasive words of human wisdom. Now, it doesn't mean that Paul came there without wisdom. It doesn't mean that he came there wisdomless. Now, there is a wisdom that Paul came there with. Verse 6 says, however, we did come with wisdom, but it was not the wisdom of this age nor of the rulers of this age. Now, what wisdom is Paul talking about with which he used to preach? That's verse 7. He says it's the wisdom of God. That's what he came with. He says we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. It's hidden wisdom. Now, the reason it's called human uh, hidden wisdom is that because it was a plan in God's mind from all eternity and nobody knew about it. Nobody could have figured it out, Paul says. Nobody knew about it. Nobody of this age knew about it. Nobody knew what God was going to do for the salvation of mankind. Verse 8 says, none of the rulers of this age knew. Had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Verse 9 says, But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Nobody could have figured it out. Nobody knew that God's plan for the salvation of mankind included a Savior dying on the cross. Nobody predicted that. Nobody overheard God. Nobody read God's mind and figured it out. Nobody knew it. Not, none of the patriarchs, not Adam, not, not Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, not David, Solomon, all his wisdom didn't know it. But now Paul stands on this side of the cross and he says, but I know. How, Paul? How is it that you know that? Verse 10. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. Now the us in that context is the inspired apostles. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Verse 11, For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. The Holy Spirit descended on the apostles and revealed to them the mystery. That's how Paul knows. And friends, that's how we know when we study what they wrote. That's Ephesians 3, 3 to 5. We can know God's will because God revealed it. He revealed it to the inspired apostles. It's an important point to understand because at some point, the Holy Spirit is going to stop revealing. At some point, God is going to finish speaking. At some point, God is going to stop telling humanity what he is doing. At some point, friends, God is going to finish his book. And by the time you read Jude verse 3, the Bible says the the faith once for all was delivered. Revelation 10.7 speaks of the mystery being finished. 
Friends, what we hold in our hand is the entire wisdom of God that was once a mystery. It would have continued to be a mystery if God didn't reveal it. He revealed his mind. And friends, if it's not in your Bible, you do not know it. God has spoken. And what that means is you cannot know anything about God except by what he has already revealed in Scripture. God's not talking to people anymore in visions and signs and dreams. He's not speaking through prophets and telling them to write another testament. No, God's word is finished. But then secondly, what God has spoken means is God's word is the authority. God's not going to be accepting substitutes for what he already asked for. This really is a point of biblical authority. How does God authorize in the Bible? Well, it's by the things that he said, not by the things that he didn't say. He didn't have to run by Noah all the ways that he didn't want the ark built. In Leviticus chapter 10, I know this is familiar to us. We read of two priests, Nadab and Abihu. God had already spoken on the subject of fire to them. Verse 1 of Leviticus 10 says, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord. Now the ESV renders it unauthorized fire. And then it says, which he had not commanded them. See, when you go back to the previous chapters, what you find is, is Moses performing all the temple activity that they are going to be doing from now on. They're watching Moses so that they could repeat those very actions. And when you, when you read chapters 8 and 9, you hear this reoccurring phrase that Moses did everything as the Lord commanded. So then when we reach Nadab and Abihu, it says that they did, they did something that the Lord did not command. Why? Because God revealed it. And so when we reach chapter 10, friends, they offer something that God didn't command because God had already spoken on the issue. Now, I don't know why they decided that they had the right to offer something that God never commanded. Maybe they thought they had special privileges, being the nephew of Moses, the, the sons of Aaron. I don't know. Maybe they thought that it didn't matter. And so often, when we're talking about God has spoken. You know, the issue isn't what God has said in your Bibles. So often the issue is we think God accepts substitutes than what he already asked for. What God has spoken means that God does not accept substitutes, friends. And if only the religious world could catch on and grasp the severity of this lesson because the passage will go on to say that fire came out from the Lord and devoured them. God has spoken. And what that means that God's word is finished, it is the authority. But then thirdly, what it means is God's word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119.89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Friends, what that means is any changes on earth that does not update heaven's record. There are individuals who are, who are attempting to change God's word. Individuals who attempt to take from God's word. My mind goes to King Jehoiakim. Remember what he did in Jeremiah chapter 36? Jehoiakim, when the word of God is presented to him, he actually takes a knife and cuts up the scroll containing God's word. And then he proceeds to throw that scroll into the fire. You remember what God said from there? 
In verse 28 of Jeremiah 36, God tells Jeremiah, take another scroll and write on it all the former the, the words that were in the first scroll. Friends, we cannot update God's word on earth. Then there are individuals who attempt to add to God's word. Not a conventional example, but my mind goes to King Saul. You know, in 1 Samuel 15, God tells uh, Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites. That's his command to Saul. Leave nothing alive. Destroy everything, man and animal. But you know, that's not what Saul heard. What Saul heard was, destroy everybody, but you could spare the king. Destroy all the animals, but you can keep the best of them alive. I say that's what Saul heard because that's what he actually did. And when Samuel confronts him, you remember what he said? I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Because in Saul's mind, he added to it. Friends, you and I can so interpret the word of God. In such a fashion that we can actually believe we're doing it. Because in our mind, we've added some things. It's the same religion, uh, uh, reason rather that religion today will offer in their worship things that God never asked for. But then call themselves a Bible-believing church. There are individuals certainly... That will attempt to change God's word. Individuals who try to take from and add to God's word. Individuals who try to disregard entire passages and authors. Even books of the Bible. There are individuals who will endeavor to to remove Paul's writing from the New Testament. There are individuals who want James removed from the Bible. Because that book contains the words not faith only. And still there are individuals today who will endeavor To try to suppress the truth of God altogether by claiming a majority consensus. That if everybody can do it, if everybody can buy into it, then God then is forced to accept it. That's not how it works, friends. Parents, you mean to tell me that when your children come to you with everybody's doing it, you then change your word? I want to go to that party. I want to drink. And here's my reason. Everybody's doing it. Oh, I didn't know that. Place. By all means, go to that party. What? I didn't know everybody's jumping off the cliff. You better not miss that bus. Is that how it works? No, friends. You and I know any changes on earth do not update God's word. Unfortunately, we seem to live in a nation that seems... That it can change God's word by its accepting of sin. That if everybody can just buy into the sin. That if everybody can just accept it. Then God now changes his word. If only they understood that the word of God is not settled on earth. It's settled in heaven, which means if you want to make changes, you actually have to go to heaven, make your way past the angels, and get God's book out of his hand. It's not settled on earth. That means that the word of God is not subject to changes made by men. It's not subject to the times. 
It doesn't grow old or outdated. It's not just subject to culture. It doesn't change with culture. That's not how the Word of God works. You know, 1,500 years after Israel received the law of Moses, Jesus stood on this earth. And he said, and he said not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law to all is fulfilled. Now, jots and tittles were the smallest of Hebrew markings. And Jesus says not a single one was irrelevant. 1,500 years after receiving it. With regard to the New Testament, Jesus would say in Matthew 24, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. God has spoken. And what that means, friends, is God's word is finished. His word is the authority and his word is settled in heaven. Amen, you might say. Hallelujah. But so what? You know, you may have agreed up to this point. What God has spoken means. You may have agreed with this lesson thus far. But friends, none of this means a thing without your appropriate response to that. And here is where the rubber meets the road, if you will. We'll end with three points of application of what that ought to mean for us. We'll use Ezra 7.10 as the basis for our three points of application. The reason that I use Ezra is because Ezra had an appropriate response to the word of God. The Bible says Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. That's Ezra 7.10. First of all, our first point of application, because God has spoken, it means I should learn what he said. Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. It ties into what our first point was in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It ties into the fact that we cannot know anything about God except by what he has revealed. The logical response to that is, I have to be studying what God has revealed or else I cannot know it. If I'm going to be seeking God, friends, I'm going to be a diligent student of his book. 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. More modern versions might say, give diligence, give all diligence to present yourself approved unto God. Now the word translated as, as study or diligence, that Greek word means to hasten. To exert oneself, endeavor, give diligence, strive, put forth great effort. Implied in the definition is the idea of study. Give diligence to present yourself to prove unto God. It includes studying His Word. Let me ask you here this morning, friends. Has your life been one in which you can say, I have given great diligence In my relationship with God. Can we say that? Can we say I am working hard. I am exerting great effort to understand God's commandments and expectations for me. I am putting forth great effort to increase my knowledge of God's word. Can we say that? Or has it been, I'm a Christian Yeah, I show up to church. 
But you know, I haven't devoted myself wholly to the study of God's word. Can we honestly say I am giving great diligence to the study of God's revealed word? Because, friends, if that were true of every member here, let me ask you this, and I know I may be stepping on a couple of toes. But if that were true, what would that mean for the attendance on Wednesday night Bible study? What would that mean for Sunday morning Bible study? Now, don't get me wrong, friends. I, I understand. I get reasons. I understand people get sick. I understand job requirements. I get all that. I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about a regular pattern of behavior. I'm talking about an attitude, not an occasional miss here or there. I'm talking about deliberate life choices. That when I understand that the church meets at this hour to study the word of God, that in my mind I say I'd rather not. No, I understand Sundays and Wednesdays. Aren't the only time to study God's word, I understand. But friends, how can we say, I am serious in my effort to seek God and his word when I keep forsaking opportunities to learn more about him? Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must, must believe that he is and he is a rewarder of those who casually seek him. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Look yourselves into the mirror of the word to yourselves, friends, and ask yourself honestly, am I diligently seeking God? God has spoken. He's revealed himself. What that means is I ought to put forth great effort in learning what he has said. But then secondly, our second point of application, it means I do what he says. Ezra prepared his heart to do. Really, it's the logical next step after the learning. It's the reason for the learning. It's the reason that God revealed his will. Toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, we find Jesus saying these words, a verse very familiar to us, verse 21 of Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And what the Lord is saying is simply having an intellectual knowledge of God's will isn't enough. You just go back to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are... How are you doing any of that without the application? Jesus would say, that, uh, let your light so shine before me. How do you do that without the application of the teaching? He'll say that, that, that bless those who persecute you. Pray those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Turn the other cheek. How are you doing any of that with intellectual knowledge only? You can't. I ain't going to pray for that man. He's not the one I voted for. I'll pray for him. I'll pray him out of office. Friends, I've got Facebook too. 
And based on some of the things that I've seen, it seems that people, Christians, sometimes are more interested in looking like the world than they are interested in looking like Jesus. It seems to no longer be the case. That if somebody persecutes you or somebody curses you, you no longer pray for them. That if somebody takes away your tunic, you no longer have to give your coat. That if somebody compels you to go one mile, it's no longer the case that you have to walk two miles. Because now it's all about my rights. Friends, if Jesus stands up for his rights, nobody gets saved. Nobody. Keep going through the entire Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus' point is simply this. Simply knowing the teachings without applying the teachings is pointless. God will not give credit for doing His will simply because we know about it. Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? James 1.22, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. James 4.17, therefore to him who, does not know, uh, who knows to do good and does not do it to him, it is sin. The reason that God has spoken, friends, is not for our entertainment, but for our change. And friends, change is impossible without the application of the teaching. Because God has spoken, it means I ought to learn what he says. It means I do what he says. But then finally, our last point. It means that I must teach others what God has said. Ezra taught. Ezra prepared his heart to teach. It's really the, a part of being a disciple. Disciples learn God, but then they teach God. Disciples make disciples. That's the idea behind the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 and following. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. God's expectations for Christians is that they mature to the point of being teachers. But not only ought we be compelled to share the truth of God by way of commandment and obligation. Friends, friend, we ought to be sharing the truth of God by way of love. Love for the truth and love of God's will. If I believe what God has said, how can I remain silent? If I love what God has said, how can I keep that information to myself? If I believe that the gospel is the greatest news in the world, and that Jesus' blood is the most powerful solution to the greatest problem of humanity's sin, and if you do not have the blood of Jesus Christ, you are destined to a devil's hell for eternity. Friends, if I know that, how can I keep silent? 2 Corinthians 4.13. Turn there with me. I just want you to see this expression that's used by Paul. Paul uses this proverbial expression to describe his attitude toward his ministry. And I would... Consider it an expression that every member here ought to take for themselves. The expression that he uses is this. I believed and therefore I spoke. I believe. Therefore I teach. If I don't teach, what does that say about my belief? If I don't speak, 
Do I really believe like I say that I do? Friends, how can I say that I believe the message? How can I say that I love the message? I love God when I never share it with anybody. By the love of Christ, friends, we ought to be telling people the truth on account of love. But please do not equate telling the truth with being loveless. Paul will say, have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? And you know, you read Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and among the subjects there, religious division, and, and a man has his father's wife, and, and, and church discipline, and, 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 and marriage, and divorce, and, and you're, you're abusing the Lord's Supper. Here's how to do it right. You know, you follow that up with his second letter, and you remember what he says about his disposition in writing that first letter? He says, out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Why did he do that? Not that you may be grieved, but that you may know the love that I have for you. You see, Paul believed the truth. He loved souls and therefore he taught them. That's the formula, friends. And if we're not sharing the truth with others... We have to ask ourselves, first of all, do I believe the truth? Second of all, do I love it? Do I love people? I believed and therefore I speak. What Bible lesson would you give this nation? Friends, that's the lesson that I would give. Because God has spoken and His word is finished. It is authorized, the final authority, and it is settled in heaven. What that ought to do is create in me a response that says, I am going to prepare my heart to give a diligent effort to study what God has revealed. I am going to make the application of the teaching that I learn, and I am going to share with others what I learn. Because I believe it. Because I love it. What a blessing God has given mankind in His revealed will. God has spoken, friends. How are we responding? If you're not a Christian this morning, we extend to you the Lord's invitation to become one. Christianity is a revealed religion. Therefore, it is a taught religion. You must be taught words. Those words we read in Acts chapter 2, Peter on the day of Pentecost, he says, Men and brethren, hear these words. He proceeds to preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. How Jesus was proven by God by miracles, wonders, and signs. But they took by lawless hands, they crucified, but God raised him up. At the conclusion of that sermon, he says in verse 36, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's the truth that must be believed. Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins, John 8, 24. You need to repent of your sins. Turn. Give your allegiance to Christ. To stop following sin. Start following after righteousness. You need to repent of your sins. Luke 13, 3. Confess, uh, confess His name. Romans 10, 9-10. Be immersed in water. Romans 6, 3 and 4. For the remission of your sins. Acts 2, 38. Won't you do that here this morning. And then live faithfully the rest of your life. As if you believe God has spoken. And if you've already done that. You are His child. Maybe it's the case this morning that the world has gotten to you. Maybe it's the case this morning that diligence doesn't accurately describe your effort. Well, friends, do not leave here thinking that that's okay. 
Do not leave here being comfortable with your station in life as Christians. Leave here with a renewed sense of responsibility. Leave here refreshed, refocused. Leave here rededicated to God. And if we can help you in any way move closer to the God of heaven, please make it known. Let's stand and let's sing.